Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and the Scott Thompson Show podcast is back. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, LRT back on the agenda in Hamilton. Could it be true? Post-COVID-19? Windsor-Essex will join the rest of Ontario in Stage 3 later this week. And do we need a Governor-General, especially one that keeps agitating everybody within the office? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We're just back from vacation and now back to reality. Sporting my new masked tan lines. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Wow. And he did all that while wearing a mask. I thought it might, uh, you know, tone him down a little bit. But no, I, I don't even think a burlap sack would do that. And you could probably say the same for Dad. Something that uh, was starting to resurface again as I just left on vacation was the topic of LRT, those three letters that uh, we haven't heard uh, in a long time. Uh, obviously, uh, COVID-19 uh, taking the place of a lot of uh, current events and, and current issues uh, and drawing our attention uh, away from the uh, basic issues of the day. But these are, uh, again, three magic letters that have uh, appeared again as uh, we left this with the task force, who uh, I guess suggested that um, the LRT was the best bet for Hamilton. However, still waiting for gov- government response on that, uh, as well as Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna also, uh, I guess, um, giving positive words, not really coming up with money at this point, but certainly positive words that Ottawa may be interested in uh, contributing to all of this. Does this change the discuss, uh, discussion post-COVID-19? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Um, uh, LRT, right. uh, is it different now post-COVID-19? Then is it a different discussion now than it was? was before COVID-19. Well, I think there's an additional argument that people are trying to make for the LRT, and that is that uh, as we come out of COVID-19, our economy is not back where it was in February. We are rising. It is a bit of a V-shaped recovery, but it's a tilted V, meaning that the drop down was much steeper than the route back up. And so uh, even the government, whether it's federal or provincial, have talked about maybe we need some infrastructure projects to kind of stimulate this recovery and make sure it's sustained. And as soon as you say infrastructure, add that to the word Hamilton, what pops into your mind? Well, of course, LRT. Uh, Last week, one of the uh, little wrinkles that we had was that the report on which uh, the, the decision to cancel LRT uh, was based, it was suddenly made public, although heavily redacted. And the first thing you notice when you go through this redacted report is the numbers don't add up to the numbers spouted by our transportation minister, uh, Ms. Mulroney. She said the reason why we canceled it, it wasn't a $1 billion project anymore. It was a $5.5 billion project. And people went, oh, my God, oh, yeah, yeah, cancel it. Ooh. But now that we've seen the report, um, those numbers seem highly suspect uh, in the report, for instance, they said that the construction cost, the base construction cost for it, had increased, no surprise here, from $1 billion to $1.3 billion. Now, they added a half a billion dollar in contingencies, good or bad, that gets you to $1.8 billion. Then they threw in lifetime operating costs 
over the next 25 years, what's it going to cost to operate it? And they got another, you know, $1.3 billion. So you start doing the math, you're up to $3 billion. But wait a minute, you, you didn't add in the lifetime cost for the LRT in Waterloo or the one in, in Mississauga or the one in Ottawa or the one in Toronto. Why are you doing that in Hamilton? So on Friday, uh, Andrea Horvath, uh, uh, using that report, called once again on the province to, to invest in infrastructure in Hamilton, preference being LRT. Uh, and we'll see where any of those calls go here in the next little while. Uh, we have heard that Ottawa is or may be interested in contributing to this. Anything concrete in that uh, on that side? Well, let's let's look at Ottawa for half a second. You know, whether you like it or not, uh, Ottawa has imposed a carbon tax. And again, whether you like it or not, in the midst of the pandemic, as it was supposed to, the carbon tax increased in Ontario from $20 a ton to $30 a ton. And so they have been collecting money. Now, that money is not to go into the general coffers of the government. They're supposed to take that money and then turn it around and invest in green projects. The argument for LRT is if this would get people out of cars and taking public transit, this would be good for the environment. And so I think in that context, Catherine McKenna said, well, if somebody wants to propose something to us, we'd be open to it. There's two questions here now is who would, who would do the proposing? Is it the province who would have to go first to Ottawa? Is it the city of Hamilton? And then what would what would the deal look like? I don't think the deal would be that uh, the, the federal government would build the LRT. I think it more it would contribute to the LRT. So, for instance, if the province was prepared to put a billion dollars in, maybe the federal government would put a billion dollars in or $500 million in. Uh, but until someone approaches them and then they get talking about it, it's just a, it's an open door to uh, to continue the discussion, but no promise of cash. So uh, it sounds like we're caught in protocol here. Well, if he asks me, then maybe we'll work together and see if we can find something out through the back door. Like, what is this, Marvin? I mean, uh, at the end of the day, whose responsibility is this to take this forward to whoever? Well, I actually do think it is the province's responsibility here. And, and so, again, to go back to the province, you were absolutely correct. Before you went away, uh, you, were, you were right. We had this blue ribbon task force that studied transit proposals. The province said, look, Hamilton, there's still a billion dollars for you, but we, we need some advice. So this blue ribbon panel met. At the start of the pandemic, they submitted their report. And in their report, they, they actually recommended two things. Plan A was, uh, again, another look at LRT, maybe a shorter route, maybe some other version of that. But then they also said, if you don't like LRT, we'd recommend BRT, bus rapid transit. And those were the two recommendations. They have been sitting with the transportation minister now. We're into the fifth month. Uh, and, and so I would say it starts with the province. What is it, province, that you want to do for Hamilton when it comes to transportation infrastructure? Then whenever you figure that out, whether it's bus rapid transit or LRT, Catherine Kenna says Ottawa might be interested in putting some money in. I'd say great, but, but the starting point here is that the province has to figure out what it is prepared to fund here in Hamilton, and that still remains a mystery. So uh, the the government, the provincial government, has already said it's going to contribute a billion dollars, whether it's to this or that. Uh, you said if the feds match that, there's another billion dollars. Is that going to cover the cost of the LRT? I think it would put a big dent into it. Now, uh, clearly, again, you'd have to think about things. So one little wrinkle with our LRT was to come down. Uh, 
It was to come down, let me get my route correct here, it was coming down King Street until it got to the 403, then it was going, there was a bridge that was going to have to be built to then route it over to Main Street until it got out to McMaster. That bridge seems like an expensive thing to me. Wouldn't it maybe make more sense to run it down Main Street all the way, and that saves you the cost of a bridge? As well, uh, we have this lovely brand new Go Transit building in Hamilton, but it's up on James Street, which would be blocks away from the route, whether it's Maine or King. So they were going to have to have some routing to send it down to the GO station, then loop it back and send it out. Maybe there would be another way to deal with that. So, you know, I I think if you sorted a couple of those wrinkles, you could probably reduce some of the scope on the project to bring it into a budget of uh, uh, maybe not a billion dollars, but certainly within a $2 billion envelope. So here we are, uh, you know, coming down the curve of, of uh, a post-COVID-19 world. Obviously, everything is changing moving forward. It's, it, there, even when there is a vaccine, I'm not sure what that normal will be. Is, does LRT have a greater chance now? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, again, given it was the province that, that axed it, I, I don't know if the province itself is having a bit of a hangover on these LRTs. Maybe they have data that I don't know that maybe the one in Waterloo or maybe the one in Ottawa or the ones under construction in Mississauga and in Toronto, maybe they aren't coming out the way they were expecting them to, and therefore their love affair has waned. Um, I, I don't quite know where the promise is coming, but for sure, talking about infrastructure building, and I think you're going to hear as well today in Hamilton a discussion about hosting the Commonwealth Games in 2026, and I know just as sure as I'm sitting here that same thing, infrastructure, infrastructure, we can use the Commonwealth Games to get money from the province, get money from the feds to help rebuild infrastructure in Hamilton. Now that infrastructure is more likely going to be things like a pool or a recreation facility or social housing. And so at some point the province might come back to Hamilton and say, we, we're prepared to jump in here, but we're probably not prepared to do both Commonwealth Games infrastructure and LRT infrastructure. So city, which is your more favorite thing if any of this goes ahead at all it, it, that's the confusing thing i love the word infrastructure but it's such a big vague thing you really need to fill in the short strokes you talked earlier about uh and alluded to how lrt sort of che- seem to now check all of these boxes whether it's infrastructure whether it's uh, energy based what have you yeah. why would our love affair with lrt be waning now that these other projects are completed or close to it uh, I, the only thing I can assume is its cost. So it checks all the right boxes, but does it add a certain cost that maybe the province or those other municipalities just don't like? Uh, and, and that's the part that I don't know yet. Uh, we, we really haven't had any of them long enough established that we can do appropriate cost-benefit analysis on them. We know what it was supposed to be going into the project. It's like the budget compared to actual. We know the budget. We just don't have all the actual numbers. And, and that the province themselves may be having a different feeling. I'm saying all that to you, also recognizing that during COVID-19, and we're in, as you pointed out, we're in 22 weeks of this, Premier Ford seems to be a different Premier Ford, yeah. where uh, a year ago his first answer to everything seemed to be no, and then how can we slash something? Boy, he is a different guy these days, and as he goes around the province, he, he is saying so many things. And also in terms of the federal government, 
Every time he's given an opportunity to attack Justin Trudeau or criticize Justin Trudeau, instead, he's effusive with his praise and support. So, you know, even he may have grown in the job, and his first impressions a year ago may be different today. I think it's worth having that discussion to see where's everybody sitting. Um, the only the only strike against COVID-19, if this new normal is lots of social distancing, lots of masks, public transit doesn't work that way. We, we actually need volume. We need to pack public transit to make it make sense. Otherwise, we've got individual cars going down the street again. And so we, we do have to get to a point closer to where we were in February in terms of the use of, of uh, something like a bus or, in this case, a, a tram running down the street. If you can't get to that, then I'm not sure the numbers are still that good. Many have said how much COVID-19 is costing governments at every single level. Uh, many are predicting, uh, you know, huge tax increases in the future to to pay for all of this and everything that the country has, has gone through. Uh, but also, as you mentioned, the attractiveness of infrastructure projects. So uh, can we afford this now is it, or does it make more sense now? Again, because there is less money, it would appear, in the coffers because of COVID-19. We have to pay for this so is this is this a bill or is this stimulus yeah well let me let me break that into two chunks if you don't mind uh uh i'm not sure we're going to be raising taxes to pay for covid19 the parallel was the second world war it was fought almost completely with borrowed money and at the end of it we we never actually did pay off that debt what we did was made it worth a smaller and smaller portion of our gross domestic product and we've just carried that debt all of these years so uh, by today's standard the debt for the second world war looks uh, small to compared to the 340 billion for covid but i think the plan for the federal government is to bring its spending down get closer to a balanced budget and then just keep paying the interest on that debt with never repaying the principal uh, so in terms of this, I, I think is an interesting question. What does next year's budget look like? If the federal government said to the world, yeah, we spent $340 billion this year on COVID. Next year, because we've got to stimulate the economy, what have you, we're going to bring the deficit down to $50 billion. Would you cheer about that? Keep in mind, had they told that to you a year ago, the deficit next year would be $50 billion, you'd be pulling your hair out. What do you mean $50 billion? It was only $20 billion when you were in office before. That's two and a half times as much. So, I, I, you know, again, we're a fickle group of people. We tend to react to whatever's happening at the moment. And, and if COVID, especially with what we see going on in the United States, a country that is not getting this disease under control, most Canadians are very fearful about reopening the border. Very Canadians are very fearful about a second wave of this. Perhaps then this, the spending on this infrastructure would be, if not loved, at least forgiven by people if it did require some more deficit funding. Marvin Ryder has been with us, Group School of Business, uh, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As of today, Monday, August 10th, uh, 115 new cases of uh, COVID-19 in Ontario. Uh, when I left to go on vacation two weeks ago, it was 195 new cases. So I know that we have been, um, you know, the last uh, week or so, I've been keeping an eye on it. The numbers have trended down below 100 and now have come back uh, up over 100, sitting at 150 today uh we're still quite a ways away we're still uh, may have made great progress from where we even were 
uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So uh, that is good news, as everybody is very, very cautious, especially with uh, Stage 3 now opening up in Windsor-Essex and and um, school starting coming up in September, and lots of concern about that. Uh, it looks at this point, uh, Ontario's got probably one of the strictest uh, back-to-school protocols uh, that the other provinces, uh, than the other provinces, uh, but we'll have to uh, wait and see what happens, because again, you can be sure this is going to change again before the kids actually get to school. Uh, there'll be lots more information to base those decisions on. All right, let's get an update on all of this. Windsor-Essex has now joined the rest of Ontario at Stage 3, uh, and, and, and of course they were held back, uh, largely due to rural and farming issues, uh, but now have made it into stage three as the rest of us are now and enjoying a, a new world with a mask. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor and health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Good to have you back. Uh, great to be here. And, you know, I was comparing the numbers from two weeks ago, uh, Ahmad, 195 when we were uh, last on on Friday, July 24th, 115 today. What are your thoughts on that? I think we're doing really well. I think we're heading towards the right direction. I think overall Ontario has done a gradual and slow progression towards mitigating this pandemic. Uh, and we're an example to be seen of other provinces now. I mean, we are looking at British Columbia now where we looked at uh, how it was the exemplary model of how to open up things back up, and they were doing very well. And unfortunately, the news coming out of British Columbia recently is that they're having a spike in the numbers. So that's not the case in Ontario. I think overall we're doing quite well. People are sticking to face masks, uh, social distancing. You're noticing, you know, if you go out on the streets uh, in Ontario now, for the most part, you're seeing most people are actually wearing face masks and, and being very strict about it. Uh, I think this slow progression towards opening things up allowed people time to really digest the key messages around COVID-19 and and to get on board. And we're seeing more and more people sticking to the rules closely and and hoping that that continues over the fall season. How do you explain, Ahmad, the the rising numbers in other parts, especially the Western provinces? I mean, at the beginning of all of this, they were doing a a fabulous job, especially, especially British Columbia. Uh, and, and then we saw some spikes uh, in Alberta and in, and in British Columbia. And as you mentioned, for Ontario, it sort of hovered around the 100 mark. How do you explain that? Well, for the most part, what we're seeing from the west part of the country is that it's the young people that are causing a little bit of the higher spike in the numbers. And this is not to put blame. This is the last thing we want to do. We, wanna, we don't want to blame, blame the young people. But I think initially the narrative has always been around COVID-19 that it affects older people. And so we we sort of lost sight of the focus of who we should be targeting our strategies towards. And and now that we know that COVID-19 does not discriminate with age, and we're seeing actually in the U.S., for example, there are reports now of very young people getting COVID-19. The, the statistics uh, that came out recently was about 60% of people are getting it at younger age. And so what the point I'm trying to make here, Scott, is that what we can learn from the West part of the country, from British Columbia, is that we can't become complacent. We can't sort of become uh, loose about that. We have to be very strict with our guidelines and, and we have to keep educating everybody, including the young people, that it affects COVID-19, will affect everybody. And and what we saw from British Columbia was that the uh, parties, uh, people gathering in mass gathering was one of the reasons why there was a spike back in the numbers. And so that's a concern. We don't want that to happen in Ontario. So we just need to keep the focus on making sure that gatherings stay within 50 people or less, that 
people are really practicing social distancing as much as possible, washing their hands. That message can't get loose, and we need to be strict on that message. Uh, I'm not sure if you were listening to the newscast prior to when you came on, Ahmad, but there was a report from the World Health Organization saying that there were no seasonal trends. Many thought that as the warmer weather came, uh, that this would sub- uh, subside in some way. Uh, and he said, when, whether we're talking about a second wave or a spike, you can call it what you want. What we do know is if we let up, it comes back. Is that message getting out? Yeah, and I think you and I have actually said it on the show way back in February. We kept, you know, this whole idea of seasonal variation and people were hopeful that the summer will sort of die down COVID-19. The thing is, we already know the evidence has been clear that COVID-19 really does not really discriminate against weather either. We've seen it in February. It was our winter. We've seen COVID-19 in parts of the world that were very hot temperatures. And so we knew early on that it would be very unlikely that there will be a seasonal variation in the numbers of COVID-19. I think, and that's actually important for us now coming into fall, summer is dying down. We're going to go into fall and winter soon that we need to stay on the alert that, uh, you know, COVID-19 is still around until a vaccine or a treatment is in place, which will be a while from now. We need to continue those those practices. And especially now when you talk to parents and school closures of being back to opening in the fall, there is this, that concern is that how do we live in this new world now that schools are going to go back to be open? And, and that really reinforces the message that WHO keeps saying, which is that we can't let, you know, we can't let loose on our guidelines. Uh, obviously, later this week announced that Windsor-Essex moving into Stage 3. They had been a hot spot for, for a while and, and struggling to get into Stage 3. How, how confident, comfortable are you now with all of Ontario in or moving? They will be by, I guess, Wednesday towards the, ends of the end of the week. But how confident are you that uh, with all of Ontario in Stage 3 that we can keep this at roughly 100 or just below uh, that new cases a day? I think I'm very comfortable with that. When I speak to uh, colleagues of mine, policymakers from across the world, they're all actually looking onto Ontario, specifically the province of Ontario, as an example of how to learn from. And that's phenomenal. I think I look back and reflect back at you and I discussing this way back in February and our strategies and not being sure how we're going to move forward and, and trying different things. And, and you know, just now we look at us opening. We're all in stage three now. People are... Our numbers look positive. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have a spike at some point. But it also, what's really key here is that we've done really well. The people of Ontario and Canada overall has done a great job of getting ahead of this pandemic. And hopefully we will get to be like New Zealand. You know, people still bring up New Zealand as that perfect country model that has done really, really well with their way of handling the pandemic. I think Canada is uh, on the path to be like New Zealand. So we just need to continue the course. How concerned are you with moving into uh, the school year? Uh, again, as, as the WHO said, you know, as we let the foot off the gas, this can come back. Um, with the fall coming and, and the normal uh, flus and whatever that are around, we, we used to always joke, especially when the kids were younger, uh, as soon as September and October started, that the house was going to get sick because they seemed to bring it all home. How will all of that uh, work into this equation? Well, parents are very anxious. It'd be very hard for you to speak to any parent of a child that's going back to school in September that's not very nervous about what's about to happen. But you also, when you speak to parents, which are the priority here, they tell you that the social skills of the children are very important here. 
So schools play a very important role in the social development of our children and how they, you know, interact socially that you cannot get that through technology, right? Zoom can only do so much. Online technology can only teach children very limited social skills. So that's why school opening is important. And that's why it's been on the decision agenda and a topic of conversation. What's going to become important here to well, while we open schools is that we keep in mind that children might get sick, that teachers might bring COVID-19 to the classroom, which then internally will go to the children, which will go to their home. So we have to be on the alert. I think everybody's watching this closely. The evidence, I'll tell you, is that school closures do work, that it's actually best to keep schools closed if you want to risk lower the risk of transmission. Having said that, although the evidence says that, we also are aware of social determinants of health. We're also aware of social development of those children, of our children. And so it's a fine balance, Scott. You know, decision makers have to make that tough call on uh, where do you draw the line. And I think that the, the, the onus here is on all of us to be on the alert, to allow that fine balance of allowing our children to go back to school for their social development, but while also keeping public health at, at the top uh, priority for all of us by making sure that our children are practicing safe hygiene, that when they come home, they're immediately washing their hands, that we're watching for their symptoms and monitoring them, that we're working closely with our school boards to support them. If there's a case, if there's an outbreak, how do we deal with that? I think that's the current conversation right now across all school boards in Ontario. Uh, so is it just to be expected once this all starts and we go back to school in September that there will be outbreaks? And, and what happens when that happens? Yeah, so that is definitely the topic of conversation right now. So the, although Ontario government has put forward what they expect to be, school boards now get to decide what they enact within that regulation. And so they're trying to figure out what happens when a child has COVID-19 or a parent, a, a child's parent has COVID-19, and that means the child might be exposed to it. Do we close down the school? What are some of contingency plans that need to put into place? That's, I think, what's happening right now. We'll see more news about that in the next coming weeks as schools start prepared to open up. Is there any part of the world that, that has, has handled this uh, correctly or is an example when it comes to sending the kids back to school? We certainly have uh, the opposite down in, south of the border, but is there, is there a model around the, around the world where returning the kids to school has been successful? So far, I think most schools are still sort of on summer vacation. Yeah. So we haven't really seen what is what the plans are. And I think all countries across the world are really dealing with the same conversations. When I speak to people all the way in the Middle East, they'll tell you that decision makers there are also battling with that big question. How do you reopen this? But I will say this. I think this is, has pushed for a much bigger question in our educational system. It's the advancement of our technology. So when we looked at COVID-19, when the first the outbreak first happened and, and kids were still in school, we learned that we do not have the technological advancement that we needed, that teachers had a very difficult time connecting with children. And so we need to be careful with that. I think the investment right now is putting forward innovative technologies for us that if we need to go into lockdown again, if there is a spike in the numbers, that we're better at it. Because I don't think we did the best job uh, during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, at really reaching out to our kids. We've heard reports of teachers only being able to connect with their students once throughout the outbreak before school closed. Mm -hmm. That's not adequate, right? We need to figure out better ways to actually deliver educational materials to our children at home in a more innovative way. Uh, And I think the whole world is looking at that. And Canada 
has an advantage that we've been a sort of a, a pioneer in our educational systems to really put forward creative thinking around that. And 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 just on that note, and not necessarily medical related, Ahmad, uh, we just uh, put our boy through, uh, and he's going into grade eight, uh, through the the uh, summer school program for both math and and language. Not summer school, but a two week kind of uh, update kind of thing, just to to keep them uh, fresh. And the model that he was using uh, through the summer programs was outstanding and way more advanced than what he was using during the school year. So parents. Uh, if I can pass any sort of positivity on on that, they are working on it. And we certainly did see the improvements uh, come during his sessions through the summer. Um, are we playing with fire here, Ahmad? I mean, is it is this all in how we handle it? I think we're not playing with fire. We're playing with a virus that we've learned so much about right now. I mean, the research evidence around COVID-19 from where we began to where we are now now is incredible. There's been so much insight into what this virus does and how it works and how it affects us and how to deal with it. But it's still a learning process. We haven't learned everything we need to learn about COVID-19 and it'll be a while before we do. Its impact has affected global economies throughout the world and it's affected human populations across the globe. And so that will take time to understand better how we can deal with it. As a professor, I tell you that I play two hats, health policy uh, expert, but also as an educator. So the role of education, all of this, how do we move forward in this new reality is something we're all facing. It's affecting all sectors. Uh, and so it's just a matter of waiting to see how we can best deal with this. I think in Ontario, what we've done is slow and gradual. It's been our message uh, and our strategy, and it has worked for us. So perhaps that is the best strategy moving forward to dealing with this uh, virus is to really be slow and gradual, to think carefully how to put forward new steps to be on the cautious side, to always be preventative, and to try to react to things before they happen. So really prevention here is key. If we anticipate the higher numbers when the school closures, school opening happens, sorry, in the fall, then what do we need to have in place right now? Do we need to keep the public awareness high? Do we need to think about reaching out to our children's parents and think about ways that we can work with them to ensure that the children's education is not being impacted? Anything more to report on a vaccine at this point? Uh, so the vaccine development has is, is been in phase three now, which is great news, which is sort of the last phase before we see it coming into market. But again, I will say what I always have been saying. It's 12 to 18 months before anything is really promising uh, that we can start having a serious conversations about being able to vaccinate the Canadian population. And Health Canada needs to approve it. And that's a very rigorous process that needs to be rigorous to ensure there's no side effects uh, and to ensure the safety of our Canadians when the vaccine is available for us. But it's great news on the vaccine development. Canada has been able to secure a deal with Pfizer uh, and Moderna, which are the two big pharmaceutical candidates for this vaccine. And, and so we're on the right track. Canada is uh, securing our right to the vaccine first, uh, which is great. So we just need to keep a close eye to see how the data comes back from the human clinical trials. Again, as the rest of the province comes into stage three later this week, what advice do you have for those that are getting out and about? You can certainly see more people are getting out. Uh, uh, and again, I just keep thinking about the, the World uh, Health Organization has said in, in that, that that this is is staying where it is because it has been contained. And if we let up, uh, it will come back. So uh, again, advice as we move into uh, the next stage. Take it one day at a time. Consider and assess your own risk and how you can limit your risk. Start with yourself first and your family. I think that we need to continue with what we've done so far. 
So great job for everybody who's following the guidelines and really trying to protect themselves, their family and their loved ones. We're definitely on the right path to really getting ahead of this pandemic. That would be the biggest advice I can give. Professor Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Governor General Julie Payette's image has taken a nosedive over the last uh, uh, week or so. Uh, she has uh, been accused of not being the friendliest person to work for and uh, staff resignations and such. Uh, that being said, I believe it is only the Queen that can ask the Governor General uh, to step down. Uh, is it time for her to perhaps voluntarily uh, step down? You might remember when when she first took the pos- uh, position, it almost seemed as if she was a little apprehensive about the whole thing. Uh, wasn't really out doing all of the gigs that she was supposed to do, because this is a very ceremonial uh, position as well, and pays a great deal of money. I think it's uh, something like $280,000 a year. And then when you retire, you get one hundred and forty grand. How's that? I think I would like to be a governor general or maybe a senator. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, always am, Scott. When I'm on your show, welcome back. Well, thanks. It's great to be here after uh, a couple of weeks rest. Although, you know, oh, somebody's getting a delivery. Uh, your thoughts on the governor general and and the accusations that we're hearing? Well, this back a little. You know, this is not the first time that the Office of the Governor General has come under public scrutiny. So we recall that there were accusations of Asian clerks about Asian clerks and that she was difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Stephen Harper had his own machinations with Mikhail Jones back in 2006. So whenever the Governor General or the Office of the Governor General becomes the story, We know that that's not good. And so once again, this is happening. There's been a lot written how Justin Trudeau was very enamored with the fact that, A, Julie Payette was an astronaut, and B, Julie Payette was a woman. And as we recall the famous phrase in 2015, because it's 2015, this appointment fit perfectly with his whole philosophy of putting women in higher positions. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe, maybe... What we don't know is how well they did a check, a reference check on Julie Payette before offering her the position. You know, whenever you have, uh, you go for a job, but the first thing that any future employer does to check your references. Yeah, I'm thinking that that did not happen because there is history of Julie Payette being allegedly difficult to work for. So I don't know if that's because it's her style. I don't know if it's because she likes to run a tight ship and some people don't like that type of uh, style. But whatever it is, there was a bit of history in terms of that behavior. So it should make it should be no surprise to anybody. Well, maybe it's a surprise now that they're looking into it. But it should really be no surprise that people don't change and their work behavior is their work behavior. And whether they're governor general or something else, they're going to be and act the same way. So, you know, Justin Trudeau had all of these facts allegedly before him, but chose to go with the celebrity star power, and now he's dealing with the aftermath. 
So uh, the Governor General, the Queen's representative, we know that that position has slowly been watered down uh, over time, over time, and, and with our own constitution is now pretty much just a figurehead. Is too much attention being paid to a position that isn't really that important, especially when it comes to tax dollars? Well, I think it's, you know, what you just said is, you know, when it comes down to tax dollars, and because it's now starting to come down to tax dollars, is what is adding a little bit of fuel to the fire about this story, because they are now looking into her questionable use of public funds. So once you have, you know, bad reputation, allegedly not nice and mean, and misuse of, of taxpayer funds, well, you're hitting for the cycle, Scott. That that's as salacious a story as the media is ever going to get about this particular, and some call it archaic office. So while there is a long history of uh, the Governor General's office, in that it is appointed by the Queen, and people may say, oh, you know, this is from a time gone by, why do we even still have it? Well, we have it. And whatever we may think, we have to deal with this issue in the here and now. Is this an embarrassment for the Prime Minister's office, then? Sure it is. Anytime the Privy Council calls you up and says you have a problem, um, you know... (laughs) It's it's an embarrassment, and it's and it's an issue of the highest order. You recall the Privy Council's uh, involvement in the SNC Lavalin yep. issue. So now we're hearing about it again. So anytime the Privy Council has to get involved, it basically bolts up to number one of the concerns you need to be worried about uh, today. And and how they deal with that will be very interesting. So I think that I don't I don't know how much will be done about quote unquote her behavior, other than maybe. You know, maybe to provide some tolerance training. Who knows? Who knows? I'm sure that's not the first time that maybe Julie, who knows if Julie Payette has ever engaged in that type of training. But when you're talking about misuse of public funds, um, but it might be another story. Although Adrian Clarkson was also called on that. And I'm pretty sure not much happened to her and she, hmm. she wrote out her term. So bad timing with the wee scandals going on amongst the prime minister's office? Oh my goodness! You know what, Scott? When you're in the, when you're the government trying to change the channel, this is not the channel you want to go to. Just another you know scandal that you have to deal with, and that you're and, and that your um, that your staff has to deal with. It's, it seems like it's raining every day. You walk into your office and you think, "What now?" And you know there was some uh, headlines in the Globe and Mail over this past weekend about how Katie Telford's husband was in on some high level talks. Uh, that he may, that perhaps he should not have been in on. So it goes on and on and on. And sometimes, Scott, sometimes when it comes to crises, you do it to yourself. And in this case, in some of these cases, that's exactly what's happening. Does the wee scandal resonate with uh, Canadians, especially during a summer when some may be on holiday? Sure it does, because the wee scandal is, a lot easier for Canadians to digest than, let's say, compared to the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Really? Every time you read about SNC-Lavalin, there was a double-spread timeline trying to explain exactly what happened. People understand this, Scott. Charity, public funds, some sort of shenanigans, not good. The, the, the narrative, the through narrative, is really easy to understand. And the other thing, too, is, is that the whole charitable sector is now worried, as, as if it wasn't hard enough to try and raise funds uh, yeah. within this period of COVID when a lot of fundraising depends on people getting together. 
and that is just not happening. Now they have the specter of suspicion. Well, where is my money going? How do I know that you're not spending it on, on celebrities and trips for, you know, the finance minister? Which, you know, we is has a very certain um, set of particular circumstances that you cannot paint with one brush against the whole charitable sector. But it certainly doesn't help. Uh, once again, we have the clerk of the Privy Council involved in this as well. You talked about the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal. Uh, he involved at the time with uh, pressuring, uh, trying to pressure Jody Wilson-Raybould in, into cutting some sort of deal. Here, uh, just before I went on holiday, they're uh, testifying before uh, the, the WE uh, hearings and such. And he, basically, he said, well, everybody, when, when questioned about whether this didn't raise a red flag, the conflict of interest that his family's uh, involvement in this charity being paid by this charity and such and the clerk of the privy council's answer was well everybody kind of knows the uh, prime minister has been involved with this charity how is it it's not as if they're finding out something that they didn't already know how how, how do you answer that question that way i have no idea like honestly he, he basically what? admitted it but th- his answer was well everybody knows he's involved in the charity did everybody know he was taking money or his family was? You know, how do you do so publicly? And I guess, yeah. you know, the Privy Council is supposed to be arm's length from influence from the Prime Minister. So a statement like that absolutely shows, that it perfectly exemplifies that, to be quite honest. So if you're going to stay arm's length and you want to make a statement like that, that basically says, well, here's what we think and let the chips fall where they may. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And you too, Scott. Good to have you back. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.